Welcome to the Conductor's Notes podcast featuring David Allen Miller from WMHT.org. David Allen Miller conducts the Albany Symphony and he provides commentary on the WMHT Live broadcast. David's commentary is full of fascinating stories about the music, the performances, and more. In order to keep the program mostly music, some of what he provides ends up on the cutting room floor. This podcast contains no music, but it does contain all of David Allen Miller's commentary from the concert broadcast on WMHT Live from WMHT-FM, your classical companion. The Conductor's Notes podcast featuring David Allen Miller's commentary for the Albany Symphony concert broadcast is made possible in part by a grant from the Aaron Copeland Fund for Music, supporting nonprofit organizations that have a history of substantial commitment to contemporary music. Our concert didn't start out as an all-Scottish program, but quickly evolved into that uh, because the first idea I had in devising this concert was to invite the amazing Scottish percussionist Colin Curry to play a new piece by Julia Wolfe. Julia Wolfe, as you may know, is one of the founding directors of the Bang on a Can Festival, which is uh, in residence in our region every summer at Mass Mocha. They have a summer festival they call Banglewood there, and the Bang on a Can Festival has become this huge thing in the world of new music. They tour the world, and they they have a, an all-day-and-night marathon in New York City, and they have their summer festival. And Julia is a wonderful Yale-trained composer who's one of the three founders and directors of that program. So when she called me and asked me if I would be interested in giving the United States premiere of a brand-new uh, body percussion concerto she'd written for Colin Curry, I immediately uh, said I'd be delighted to. Colin's one of our favorite guest artists and just an absolutely stellar figure. And I had just, uh, I guess when, when we talked about it, I, I was planning a trip, and I I subsequently took this wonderful trip to Scotland to conduct the BBC Scottish Radio Symphony. Uh, And so I've really fallen in love with Scotland, and I thought, why not do a a nice, warm Scottish evening in the middle of January? And in fact, we did. So we uh, decided to end the program with Mendelssohn's great Scottish symphony, his homage to Scotland, and to begin the concert with a work by a great English composer, Peter Maxwell Davies, still very much alive in his 80s, English-born, but of Scottish descent, partial Scottish descent, who'd written a charming piece called An Orkney Wedding with Sunrise. So while Julia Wolfe's concerto, the centerpiece of the program, is not technically a Scottish work, I surrounded this wonderful Scottish percussionist Colin Curry with two works that sort of pay tribute to the greatness of Scotland. So the first work on the program, this very intriguing and charming work by Sir Peter Maxwell Davies, was actually commissioned by the Boston Pops in 1985. I think it was for their 100th anniversary. Max, as he's known, Peter Maxwell Davies, is not really thought of it as a, a pops or a light music composer. His music actually tends to be much more densely modernistic and sometimes very challenging and, and bizarre and fabulously theatrical. Uh, as to why the Boston Pops thought of him for this commission, I don't know, but he obliged uh, with his most charming and frankly accessible piece, probably in his entire oeuvre, uh, this wonderful piece called Orkney Wedding with Sunrise. And what it is essentially is a uh, a tribute on his part to his adopted home of the Orkney Islands, which is this little archipelago of of very uh, uh, distant islands off the the far north coast of Scotland, the northeast coast. So they sort of sit between, I guess, Norway and Scotland uh, up there, and uh, they're beautiful little, very barren, very rugged islands uh, with some inhabitants. And Max, I think just because he wanted uh, a lot of quiet time in which to compose— 
about 35 or 40 years ago, moved to one of the islands in the Orkneys and has lived there ever since. He makes his regular trips down to London and and around the world, but he lives principally in the Orkneys. And so uh, for this Boston Pops Commission, he decided to, as he described it, create a picture postcard uh, version of an Orkney wedding celebration. So the piece uh, really is is kind of a little bit like the Dances of Galanta by Kodai or other dance suites and that it really is, in essence, an amalgam of these different kinds of dance suites. I assume all of them imagined by Max, but with lots of wonderful little bagpipey kinds of sounds and little um, grace notes before the notes that give it this kind of wonderful Scottish snap idea. Uh, the piece begins with a little bit of nasty weather, which is very much a part of life in the Orkneys, on the Orkneys, uh, and then that immediately matriculates into a sort of beginning procession of everybody proceeding to to the church, I guess, for the, the wedding. And then um, there's this fabulous series of kind of dances that get ever more rowdy, that you actually hear the orchestra tuning up at one point, and this kind of earthy orchestra with a lot of violin solo from our concertmaster Jalevi plays ever more boisterous and funny and, dare I say, inebriated dances. And at certain points, the, the, the music sort of falls apart in very clever and funny ways as the, the members get more and more drunk. And then uh, night falls and things kind of quiet down and you have this wonderful transition music and then quite a, a shocking development, which since this is the radio audience, I'll let you in on at the very back of the hall there emerges, in the very back of the audience, from the back of the hall, emerges a bagpiper in full regalia in our performances who marches down the aisle and eventually makes it to the stage and is joined in this fabulous sunrise bagpipe song uh, that closes the piece. So here it is, Peter Maxwell Davies' tribute to his adopted home, the Orkney Islands in Scotland. Uh, it is an Orkney wedding with sunrise. This is the Conductor's Notes podcast, only from WMHT-FM, your classical companion, and WMHT.org. That was Peter Maxwell Davies, an Orkney wedding with sunrise performed by the Albany Symphony, conducted by me, David Allen Miller. Second on the program was this absolutely singular concerto, unlike any other concerto ever written, because while it was written for the great Scottish percussionist Colin Curry, it is not technically, or at least half of it is not technically a percussion concerto. It is, in fact, a body percussion concerto. Uh, the genesis of the work uh, comes about because um, Julia, Julia Wolf, the composer, uh, is very much interested in indigenous American music. She's played dulcimer. She's also kind of a, a scholar and, and very much interested in the American labor movements of the last 150 years or so, uh, labor activism, and also uh, has, has studied Appalachian folk music and integrated that into her music and various other kinds of folk music. And when Julia and Colin discussed the idea of a new percussion concerto for Colin, uh, Julia had this very interesting idea of of sort of appropriating all the amazing body percussion that uh, is actually very much a part of tradition of certain African-American communities, particularly in the South and places like North Carolina, uh, where, where people actually would, would make drumming sounds on their, on their bodies, on their chests, on their shoulders, on their face, etc. It's, it's a little bit pre-beatboxing. There isn't any actual beatboxing in the, in the uh, piece. But there is this sense of kind of urban New York slang. And in a sense, uh, Colin actually beatboxes on his body, not on his on his face and not using his 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 mouth or, or verbalizing per se. 
So Julia wanted to write a piece that that kind of occupied this fascinating world of making percussion sounds, of drumming on one's body. And, and I must say that, you know, Colin told us stories about the, the two performances he, he'd had in Europe before he came to us and how his mum, his mother came to the London performance and was actually very alarmed because he, he really bangs on his, his hip quite extensively and I think creates quite a welt there and a great deal on his chest and then on his hand, on his chest, making these fabulous different snapping and clicking and, and pounding sounds. Uh, it's a very physical piece, as you can imagine. And uh, he said it takes kind of a day to recover and to have the the slight redness and, and bruising on his body sort of go away. It's not that alarming, but it's a fabulous thing to see. So you'll have to just imagine that you're watching it while you're listening. Uh, the way the piece is, is organized, it's actually organized kind of in, in, in a two-part form. There's this fantastic body percussion uh, cadenza where the orchestra stops in the middle and there is about, I don't know, three minutes of Colin just doing these incredible rhythms on his body. And then after this whole first half, which has led up to that of of playing only on his body, uh, he then walks across the stage uh, and sits down. He's been on on my right and now he walks over to my left. And there's a whole incredibly involved drum set set up on my left, which he then occupies for the second half of the piece. But the drum set is entirely made up of found instruments. It's it's essentially these, if you've ever been on the New York City subway uh, and seen at one of the subway stops, one of these sort of street drummers who's pulled together buckets and, and oven crate, oven uh, grates and, uh, and garbage cans and such, and is playing very involved drumming, drums on these things. This is essentially a kind of high art reinterpretation of that. So it's, it's made up of buckets. And in fact, there was a very funny in- instance where when Colin showed up, we had purchased a very expensive rubber garbage big big garbage can for him and he tried to play on the bottom of it and it kind of had a dull sound and he saw a, a full garbage can <laughs> at the Palace Theater backstage and he had them empty the garbage into the pretty one and took the not so pretty one and found that it made a fabulous bass drum sound when he, he plays on it. So this drum set is entirely made up of, of found materials. He, he actually brought one of his favorite oven grates from his home in London but it's all kind of junk materials and he plays this fantastic sort of drum set solo on on the, the, uh, the found material. So again, that's sort of this homage to New York urban drumming culture. So uh, the piece begins very quietly and mysteriously and it unfolds very gradually. It does take a while to unfold fold as Colin begins to sort of introduce first sort of he does these sort of these sort of air sounds that get going and claps and things and that evolves into a much more active and actually rhythmic kind of bunch of figures. There's also a, a wonderful, I don't know, four or five minutes, three or four minutes into the piece, uh, there's this wonderful sort of trombone and then trumpet, uh, there's kind of moaning, singing things. And Julia explained to us that she is a big fan of Alan Lomax and all the amazing uh, recordings he created and collected of indigenous folk music as he went around the country in the 40s, I guess, in the 30s and 40s and 50s. Uh, And she heard an Alan Lomax record on which it was a chain gang and she heard a bunch of people and they were singing this kind of thing about rise, I'm going to rise and fly, almost like a, a spiritual. And so this trombone theme where the trombones sort of moan and sing this little fragment over and over again with the trumpets joining in 
is, is really a quote of this idea, rise and fly. And that's where the, the title of the piece comes from. So that eventually leads to this big, incredible body percussion cadenza, which is followed in the second half of the piece by this amazing found instrument drumming section of the piece. So a very exciting, very singular, very strange and wonderful piece. Uh, again, a sort of homage to the amazing Colin Curry, one of the two greatest uh, solo virtuoso percussionists in the world, the other being Evelyn Glennie, also a good friend of ours. So uh, here it is now, the U.S. premiere of Julia Wolf's Concerto for Body Percussion and Orchestra, Rise and Fly. The soloist is Colin Curry. The orchestra is the Albany Symphony, conducted by me, David Allen Miller. This is the Conductor's Notes podcast, only from WMHT-FM, your classical companion, and WMHT.org. The Conductor's Notes podcast, featuring David Allen Miller's commentary for the Albany Symphony concert broadcast, is made possible in part by a grant from the Aaron Copeland Fund for Music, supporting nonprofit organizations that have a history of substantial commitment to contemporary music. For the second half of our program, we turn to one of my absolute favorite romantic period symphonies. It's a symphony by Felix Mendelssohn, his so-called Scottish symphony, and he did, in fact, title it that. So it's not something that a name that was given to him it after the fact. It was, in fact, his intent to write this piece all along, uh, ever since he'd gone on his first journey to Scotland when he was a mere 19-year-old. And uh, at that time, I guess in 1829, he had been so captivated by Scotland and by the mystery and the, the magic of the place. And it was at this time that he got the inspiration for writing that famous overture, the Hebrides Overture, Fingal's Cave. Uh, but he also went to see Holyrood Castle in Edinburgh and stood there and and being an incredibly literary person uh, and very knowledgeable about history, he he could just imagine that that in this crumbling tower next to Holyrood, that was where Mary Queen of Scots was was kept before her execution. And when he was standing there, this theme came to his mind. This wonderful theme that was sort of suggested by, by this idea. And he jotted it down and filed it and uh, had intended to write a, a symphony about this Scottish journey, but he never quite found the rest of the materials that he, he wanted to assemble the symphony. And so it sat there dormant for actually 12 or 13 years. And it was only in the early 1840s, when he was kind of at the, the pinnacle of his fame, uh, that he turned back to this idea of a Scottish symphony and, and evolved the ideas for the rest of the symphony. Uh, it's in four movements. And I, I have to say that, that working on it this time for me was a real revelation because, uh, you know, as as always, I try to really attend to the indications the composer gives. And, and Mendelssohn gives very clear metronome marks, tempos, the speeds that he wants for the various movements that are pretty routinely ignored by conductors. I think there's this sense with Mendelssohn, strangely, because his music to me sounds so so classical in a way. And obviously, he was such a, a scholar and student of the works of Mozart, of Beethoven, particularly of Bach. And, and very much in a way, although he was a very creative and, and wonderfully inventive composer, his music in many ways looks back to those antecedents, whereas a composer like Liszt or Wagner writing at the same time is really looking forward to try to create this very revolutionary new kind of music. Uh, Mendelssohn, of course, on the one hand, was a, an innovator. He, he is credited along with Liszt as being one of the founders of the, the tone poem of the, you know, the purely symphonic treatment of a, a literary idea. And, and many of his overtures, actually, Mendelssohn's overtures, are in essence sort of little little tone poems, none, 
none more so than the Hebrides, the Fingal's Cave. And actually, this symphony, in a way, is something of a tone poem. It's in four movements, but Mendelssohn indicates to the conductor that he does not really want pauses between the movements. And there's some very—so so it's kind of a continuous four-movement, 30-some minute span. Uh, and also, he does some interesting structural things that aren't typical in symphonies. Uh, the first movement begins with that beautiful, slow introduction that had come to him 13 years earlier, and then there's a sort of lively first movement. But then at the end of the first movement, the introductory material comes back, this quiet, reflective m- music, and brings us to the second movement. Usually in a symphony, the second movement would have been a slow movement. In this case, the second movement is this very famous, very fabulous, very Scottish, or at least German person imagining what Scottish music sounds like, Scottish idea of that famous clarinet tune that gets taken up by the whole orchestra and and to me is very colorful and I think it actually sort of uh, suggests the the clans the Scottish clans and I'll speak about that in a moment um, and then a beautiful slow third movement very evocative very Schumann like very songful and then a, a very wonderfully military in a sort of old Scottish way kind of last movement. He even originally had titled it Allegro Guerriero, uh, a warlike allegro. So he's really, again, thinking of these clans. And then that leads to a, a slow, introspective thing far into the fourth movement, and then a fabulous, kind of seemingly brand new, huge uh, celebratory coda, the place that I always think is done at about half the, the tempo he indicates and is done in completely in the wrong in the wrong way. What what occurred to me actually as I was conducting this concert because I've been working through it and reading about Mendelssohn and thinking about Mendelssohn. You know, Mendelssohn was an incredibly erudite person. He was this amazing child prodigy, perhaps arguably even more amazing a child prodigy than Mozart, arguably the greatest child prodigy in music history. He was a close friend of Goethe's when Goethe was in his 70s and Mendelssohn was 11 years old. He was unbelievably well-read. His father was this wealthy Berlin banker. Uh, The the children had every possible kind of tutor, were fluent in Latin and Greek, uh, incredibly well-read. They had their own little orchestra to try out Felix's and Fanny's pieces on the weekends that his father hired for them. They lived lived an incredibly privileged life. And he was an extremely educated, well-educated person. And he was also a real early romantic. And so he obviously was very well-read in the works of Sir Walter Scott and in all the great literary works and had a very clear, to my estimation, in sort of retrospect, a clear idea, a picture in his mind of Scotland and what was romantic about it and what was interesting about it and all this Scottish history and the lore and the, the clans and the wars and the warring tribes and such. And I believe that he poured all this into the symphony. It's not a specifically programmatic piece. He never indicated this is about such and such and that is about so and so. But what I've really come to think is that it's all very much his idea sort of reprocessed of his literary image of what Scotland is. And that's why the second movement and the fourth movement are so wonderfully uh, vital and, and dare I say, warlike in a sort of antique uh, romantic notion of what Scottish warring tribes might be like. And it's why I think the way the the end of the last movement is, is almost always done incorrectly at too slow a tempo, this is kind of the ultimate triumphant, uh, you know, sort of the, t- the side that won singing their their song of triumph. So you'll notice that if you know the piece well, my tempos tend to be on the fast side because they are in fact Mendelssohn's tempi, and that there is this kind of, I hope, this kind of boisterous vitality to a lot of it that I think is missing in many of the more kind of uh, slow, beautiful, warmly wrought Brahmsian interpretations that have sort of become the norm over the last 50 years or so. 
So here it is, this amazing piece by Felix Mendelssohn, his Scottish symphony, the symphony number three, even though in fact it is his last symphony, the last one he wrote, Mendelssohn's uh, symphonic numbering is entirely askew and, and not, uh, not orderly. But his last symphony, the Scottish symphony, uh, it is performed by the Albany Symphony, conducted by me, David Allen Miller. Thanks for listening to the Conductor's Notes podcast featuring David Allen Miller of the Albany Symphony Orchestra from WMHT-FM, your classical companion, and WMHT.org.